Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Well, I'm afraid it looks as though we Londoners are a bit clumsier than I'd like to have believed. Not only have we managed to lose a vast number of rivers, turns out we've been misplacing quite a few parts of the city as well, whole districts in some cases. Fortunately, help is at hand in the form of author Tom Bolton, who is only too happy to find our missing bits of London for us, bring them back and tell us to be more careful next time. It's the 19th of December 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. This is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds You ain't never seen the light before Just a stone throw from your front door resisted and my resistance came to naught. I have been dragged kicking and screaming by my guest into my least favourite place in London, the vortex that is the Barbican, and Tom Bolton has already vigorously begun a defence of this establishment. Hi Tom. Hello. (laughs) What is it that holds an attraction here for you? Well I forced you to come here because this is one of the places that I write about in my book Vanished City, and the Barbican is built on the site of an entire neighbourhood that has, that has vanished. It's one of the most spectacular vanishings that you can imagine, really. The entire place, Cripplegate, burned to the ground overnight in the Blitz in 1940. The night of the 29th of December 1940, uh, firebombs fell on the city. And Cripplegate, an ancient neighbourhood named after one of the gates in the City of London uh, wall, was, was completely destroyed and replaced by this. So the Barbican is a, a kind of a a ghost image of Cripplegate in some ways. It's been placed over the street pattern, the streets that were here before. Some of them exist, some of them don't. There's there's a hint of what was here, but the actual neighbourhood, it's uh, it's almost impossible to imagine there was something else here now because the Barbican is such such a significant presence. Yes, that's one term for it. But we, we can't actually blame the Barbican outright. There was an interval, presumably, where it was being worked out what should be done with what was presumably a gaping hole in London. Well, this was the biggest bomb site in London for um, 
a couple of decades after the war. So a whole area of city and city edge was burned to the ground, cleared, left as rubble, about a mile by a mile and a half. But the reason that this place burned was because it was extremely combustible. This was the rag trade area before the Second World War, so it was full of warehouses. And the warehouses were stocked with linen and wool and silk and uh, accessories, and the, the entire warehouse was full of feather boas, things like that. And the whole area was, was a very high insurance risk neighbourhood. It was known as Fire Island. And when the London, the Auxiliary Fire Brigade carried out a pre-war exercise, what, what they would do if the city was bombed, they ran it here, and they ran a simulation, and by the end of the night um, of their simulation, they'd lost control of the notional fire that was going on, and the entire area had burned to the ground. Exactly that happened when the bombs really fell. So... It burned in 1940, but it had already burned down a couple of times previously towards the end of the 19th century. Um, so this is a place that was very hard to, uh, to defend from, from attack. It was, it was always going to, to go up in flames eventually, I think. Once the rag trade had been, if not obliterated, sorely inconvenienced in the area, what happened to the rag trade? Did it move en masse? Was it, was it snuffed out? Did it relocate piecemeal? It found other places to go, but then industry was changing, so I think the the war accelerated some processes that would have happened anyway. Um, But the the shifting identity of these neighbourhoods is part of what really interests me. So places that were extremely well-known to Londoners at the time have, um, in many cases, been entirely forgotten. They seem to have slipped under the radar. So Vanished City is a book about these places, about places that would have been extremely familiar to their contemporaries, but we seem to have forgotten about since. And Cripplegate is a, is a very clear example of this. It's an ancient neighbourhood. It had lots of associations. So before the rag trade came here, it was known as a, a radical area, an area where dissenters would base themselves. Milton and Blake and Bunyan and Defoe, all, all associated with the area. Cromwell. Um, this is a place where people would live just outside the city walls, so just beyond the jurisdiction of the City of London. And this was a convenient spot for people who had ideas that weren't necessarily uh, you know, the ideas that the City of London would be supporting and helping and um, this was the place where these people ended up. I'm wondering if there's anywhere comparable at the moment. I can't readily think of a district that bears comparison. Well I think there's a bit of a lack of um, that level of dissent perhaps in our, in our culture today, I'm not sure. I mean here the rebellion started in Cripplegate, somebody tried to overthrow Charles II um, formed a small, a small uh, coup as it were attacked Parliament um, and was, was hung on Red Cross Street which was one of the streets that ran under the Barbican, so this is where things, things really did happen but another form of, of, um, of dissent and outsider activity was associated with this place too. This is where Grub Street was. So Milton Street, which still exists next to the Barbican, was originally Grub Street. And Grub Street is where the hack writers of the 18th century were based, where the publishers that published uh, works by people like uh, Pope and Swift were based. And it was a very disreputable trade. There's a whole circus of um, entertaining activity and anecdotes around Grub Street and the people who lived here and uh, the way that they attacked each other in print and conducted uh, complex feuds over long periods of time. But I think Grub Street is somewhere that, that most people would struggle to place on the map. That The idea that it was here, this is the place where all these things happened, has, has somehow been lost. And the idea of Cripplegate itself has, has faded away too. 
we are of course close to the city wall and uh, whilst some of the outlying areas of London it's easy enough to imagine those as more or less countrified I can't quite conjure up a mental image of what the outside the wall area would have looked like during the time we're talking about can you draw us a picture well, something about these, these vanished places is related to the edges of, of the city. So places that were built on the edge tended to be less, uh, less long-lasting to some extent. They started off temporary and then they changed and uh, were rebuilt or, or cleared. And this was essentially scrubland, but then outside the wall is a good place to, to put trade. So if people are coming and going through the gates, there, this is where the business is. So development gradually happened here over time. I mean, it was also where rubbish ended up too and if you go further further around to king's cross until the uh, the 18th century late 18th century when london started to develop out there it was an area that was known for its dust heaps so the the king's cross dust heaps feature in in fiction they're in dickens um, in our mutual friend and it's really where rubbish was was left so dust carts would empty there but also the remains of the brewing process uh, were stacked up there the husks from the barley for example and it was a bit of a local feature. Um, and this is because, you know, at the edge of the city, there's space for things. But, of course, as the city develops, the space, the space disappears and the land becomes more valuable. And um, this is what happened here, really. I mean, Cripplegate was Cripplegate within, within the walls. And then it became Cripplegate without as well, which meant the bit that was outside the city walls. And London as a whole spread outside its, its original confines, outside the Roman and medieval walls, and um, kept them going, really. Never stopped. Well, indeed, and some of what you're saying there reminds me a lot of what was being said about the Olympic site and its famous fridge mountains and a general sense of a very small, dirty industry going on in and amongst. This is true, this is true. I mean, the Olympic site's an interesting parallel, but one of the other places that I've written about is White City. And everyone knows the White City estate and the tube stop and the fact the BBC are there. But White City was before the estate, London's first Olympic park. So that was Edgelands too. It was scrubland on, on the edge of developed London in the early 20th century when, when the Olympic site was built. It was about 1911 or something, wasn't it? 1908. Ah. Yeah, 1908 Olympics. But the Olympics were an afterthought. So the, the site had the White City exhibition on it, the Franco-British exhibition of 1908, built on an incredible scale. There were something like 20 palaces, as they were known, and 120 pavilions. And the whole, the whole site was, was a fantasy land, really. There were, all these buildings were um, fantastical architecture. They were covered in gleaming white stucco. They looked amazing. And London loved this place. It was Millions of people came. It had attractions that were famous. There was something called the Flip Flap, which was a, a, a rather alarming-looking fairground ride. It looks like the kind of thing you'd still find you know, on the pier, um, really kind of modern and, and scary. Oh, we, we need a description of the Flip Flap, I think. Well, it's a kind of... It's, it's got carriages on the end of an arm that pivots in the middle, so it just basically throws you right up in the air. A giant seesaw. Again. It is a bit, but um, it looks a lot scarier than that. A giant <laughs> seesaw, of, it, yeah, it, it's not doing it justice. But it was very popular. There were songs about it and everything. How, how long did that uh, set up last? Well, it, it eventually disappeared, only really when, when Westfield was built. So the last traces of the buildings that were on the exhibition site were where Westfield is now, the tall buildings they were known as, and they were exhibition halls. But they weren't the, the, the fantastical bit of the site. They weren't the really impressive um, white stucco buildings. They, they gradually disappeared uh, up until the Second World War, so apparently they, they started looking a bit grubby and um, 
they weren't as, as gleaming as they once were. And the exhibitions that were held on the site got less and less exciting and they became trade shows, basically. And then eventually it closed in 1929 because, supposedly, the last show that was held there, the entire area, Shepherd's Bush, was covered in fog for 10 days and, and people were annoyed about the kind of... the windy, drafty halls and uh, the unmaintained facilities and this was the final straw so it, it stopped being used and it fell into ruin the accounts of the, kind of the rotting ribs of White City um, in, in novels of the time I, I rented a place in Shepherd's Bush that overlooked exactly that site where the Westfield was uh, going up and I can attest to the general drabness there and in fact I think there was something wasn't there with one of the tube lines that did a, a loop around so that you could uh, get to these attractions and, and that loop was removed and I guess that area must have just been in general neglect you know the, the sort of uh, part of rubbish at the corner of your room that you've decided to ignore and not tidy up for decades. Yes I mean it was, it was forgotten and undeveloped for an unbelievably long period really considering the it's quite a central site but it's still quite isolated it's odd there are, there are many stations around the edge of white city but white city itself the estate site and and the bbc area it's a bit of an island which people sort of circle around they don't tend to go into it but it, in the estates you have roads that relate to the pavilions that were on the site south africa road canada road and um, lots of kind of colonial references and street names there's a, a street called durando close and that is much more modern but it it relates to the famous marathon runner who competed at the 1908 Olympics, Durando Pietri, and there are photographs of him being helped across the line. So he, he ran, he, he burned off the entire field, but he used up too much energy and he couldn't make it round the final lap of the stadium. So lots of pictures of Edwardian gentlemen helping him over the line as that's he collapses that's repeatedly. That's right, we've seen that. With, and they're all wearing boaters, aren't they? Exactly, they are. And then he was disqualified, unsurprisingly. But it was a, <laughs> it was a national scandal. There were fights in the stands when it was announced. I mean, the nice series Olympics are, are pretty entertaining in themselves because they were run by, by Britain, hosted here. Uh, it was a bit of an afterthought that they were held here at all, so they were added onto the exhibition site. But the games were basically rigged, so the, the British Medal Hall is a record one, and it's partly because we included sports that other people didn't play and excluded the ones that that Britain wasn't so good at. <laughs> and then the do, do we, What events do we have, like queuing or...? I think it was various sorts of shooting. It was more technicalities, the kind of shooting, you know, the bore of the rifle, that kind of thing. But the, the, the games lasted for three months, and basically a lot of competitors had to go home before they finished, <laughs> which is quite a good way to give yourself an advantage. If only we'd thought of that in the 2012 Olympics, just eke it out a little bit longer, and, but reduce the visa time. Yeah, I like the strategy. I think it's, I th- I think it's something that people should look at again. So we touched on a couple of vanished neighbourhoods already, and what I want to know is how how deep you are mining when it comes to the vanished knowledge here. Is it the case that this is amongst the uh, people who know everything there is to know about London? These are sort of known things, and you're just nudging them up a layer or two so that the general public can see them? Or is it that you're uncovering stuff that really nobody's ever heard of before? Is it a, an enjoyment and a love of sharing stuff that's new to you? What's the principle here? I think I'm trying to understand how we came to be here, how we came to be in this city. And I get the feeling really in London that there's incremental change around us all the time. So the place is shifting. You you turn a corner and a block has disappeared and you think, oh, 
I can't remember what was there, but something was there. But now there's hoardings, and we're used to that, really. So on the one hand, change happens on a, a scale that means that we hardly notice. But on the other hand, big change happens on a scale that we can hardly comprehend, really, like the docks disappearing, for example. The, the whole of the East End of East London was built for the docks, and now they're not there. So you get a sense in some parts of London of a kind of an absence, uh, which is unsurprising. Something isn't there anymore. So big shifts like that too. But I was trying really to look at what we've replaced uh, as we've come to build the city that we've got. And I think everything around us is disappearing gradually. Everything's disappearing at various different speeds, really, isn't it? We're surrounded by change and um, replacement. So I wanted to really get a sense of places that were very, very distinctive. And a lot of these are known, I think, but... I think they're just below the, below the consciousness of, of many people who know London very well. And partly this is because they've been rebranded or deliberately, deliberately removed, changed for particular reasons. And there are interesting examples of places that were demolished and cleared. So Agar Town, for example. Agar Town is something that people have generally vaguely heard of but can't place. And it was, it was deliberately cleared by the Victorians for the approaches to St Pancras Station. And the Victorians had a, they had a tendency to use infrastructure projects as a means of clearing slums. They'd route roads through areas that they, they quite wanted to get rid of. Uh, so some places have been deliberately suppressed, removed from the map, and others have faded away simply because they've, they've not been popular anymore or things have moved on. Um, so Ratcliffe, for example, which... Again, it's on the map, but a bit hard to place. Between Limehouse and Wapping. I, I think I know Ratcliffe in the context of some murders. Well, yes, the Ratcliffe Highway murders are what, what is best known about the place. So, you know, early serial killing, first kind of sensational press coverage of murders. Uh, and that in itself is fascinating. But Ratcliffe was London's first port. It was where the wharves were for ships before um, modern basins were built. So Tudor ships would, would dock at Ratcliffe Tudor adventurers would sail from Ratcliffe to look for the North West Passage and it's, it's been subsumed really by the places next to it, Wapping and Limehouse have taken over uh, but it's still there, it had this significance that has, has faded away, it's an interesting illustration of this because in the 19th century when Queen Victoria was crowned um, 1837, her coronation was proclaimed at various spots, significant spots in London, including Ratcliffe Cross and by the end of her reign, people could no longer remember why they'd done that. They couldn't remember the significance of the place anymore. So something had happened in that time, and it was no longer it no longer mattered to London so much. I'm fascinated to know about the process that brought you to that bit of information. Ah, well, I suppose it's just it's digging and it's reading. I'm trying to get below the below the surface of these places and get to things that are really um, not that well known at all. But there's an enormous amount of information out there. You just have to keep keep reading and keep following leads and keep digging and there's a lot of for example 19th century accounts of London which are very detailed and can be quite abstruse but within that there's really amazing material but I, I, but I suppose what really interests me and in what you said there was that you're tapping into a general awareness and that's the sort of thing that seldom gets recorded certainly you've got personal accounts certainly you've got the big picture stuff and the important things but especially a comparative general feeling you know we used to think this and now we think that that doesn't crop up so often no that's true it's difficult to get that kind of perspective on the city you've almost got to have somebody doing what you're doing now back then as, as your point of reference don't you <laughs> yeah well you're very lucky if you come across that kind of material but there's always contemporary accounts 
accounts, the sort of contemporary accounts of, of things that may not have seemed significant at the time. So that's part of the fun. It's finding the things that, that make, you, make you sit up and, and uh, you know, read, read again to make sure you haven't missed the point. It's, there's amazing nuggets buried away. But on the other hand, it's very hard to find things that aren't known in London. It's a very well-documented city, but the size and the depth of its, size of the city, depth of its history mean that there's an infinite amount of material still, an infinite amount of understanding to be drawn out of the place, particularly through individual experiences. I mean, the, the extent to which this place has, has hosted all sorts of different types of people is amazing, and Ratcliffe's a great example of that. It's an incredibly cosmopolitan place, and the docks around Limehouse, too, during the 19th century, they were the empire, really, and people who came there came from everywhere that Britain had connections with and beyond. One of the other places that I write about is Limehouse, Chinatown, so Limehouse is the location of London's first Chinatown. If you go to West Ferry Station, you'll find lots of streets with Chinese names, like Amoy Place or Ming Place or Peking Street. And there's no sign physically, apart from the streets, of what was there before. All the buildings have been cleared. But this is where, this is where Chinatown was based. And it was a small but, but real community which came from sailors who, who would come on merchant ships, would stay, some would um, set up businesses for their, for their fellow countrymen. But it created this incredible myth. So the myth of Chinatown far exceeded the, the reality. And people for across 75 years or so, from the late 19th century to the Second World War, wrote about the exotic East End, the opium smokers of, Chi- of Chinatown, the unnameable evil, the, the sinister, the sinister uh, back alleys, the you know, incredible imagination and invention. And there's a, a strange kind of guilt in this, I think, because these places were... Um, very much the downside of the prosperity of the rest of the city and Chinatown in particular was it was fascinating um, yet dangerous in people's minds whereas in reality it wasn't quite as exciting as that but it was it was much more it was much more real well all of the east end seemed to have a bit of that going on didn't it and maybe we find embodiment of that in Jack the Ripper of course he absolutely was real but the level of myth that's been able to spring up around his deeds far exceeds and outlives uh, him of course but also the area that is now very fashionable, the kind of Shoreditch area, Brick Lane all of those areas, they were reputed to be dangerous spots to venture into and probably rightly so Well yes, I mean the East End was uh, full of, it was full of poverty in the 19th century, very quick growth, a lot of unfortunate consequences including people in very very bad housing Uh, but at the same time it was testbed for a new kind of global culture really people from from all over the place were coming to London for the first time and you get this you get a sense of this from all sorts of parts of London really you get people popping up in odd parts of the East End where you think um, the association is very vague so well close which is a square a pair of squares mostly demolished now where Wilton's Music Hall is they were, they were Scandinavian areas. One was Norwegian, the other was Swedish. Sorry, one was Danish, the other was Swedish. And they had their own churches. There was a Danish church and a Swedish church. And um, this is where the relatively well-off sailors who worked in the timber trade came to live. And the, the Danish congregation lasted there until the ni- late 19th century. Eventually the church was moved. Um, but these places had a really clear identity that is entirely missing now, entirely missing. And the the richness of life in the East End, which went with the docks, was it came very quickly, really, and it went very quickly as well. So you get you get these places left that have a whole weight of history that, that still seems to it still still needs uncovering. I think and well close is somewhere that's not really been written about in great detail, uh, but it was a liberty, which meant that it was self-governing. So the, before the the squares were built there, it was it was the place where 
an abbey had been, St Mary uh, Grace Church, which was known as Eastminster. And it's supposed to have occult associations. The area is part of various theories about the uh, the designs that Christopher Wren may or may not have been building into the city of London after the Great Fire, uh, the dimensions of the base of the pyramid at, uh, at Giza, that sort of thing. If, you, if, you, if you're into uh, occult numerology, then Wellclose Square is an important place. We covered a lot of ground there, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose we did. That's the thing, though. If you go to, you go to somewhere that looks fairly ordinary and fairly un... Um, fairly unremarkable you find that it's anything but but uh, it's not obvious but i'm interested in the way that you can see traces so if you if you walk the streets then you can still see indications of what was there you can still get clues you can you can follow a route that will take you back in time to some extent um, and the chinese streets are one example of that They're loaded with symbolism this, this place was it was well known by reputation across the globe, yet these streets are, are just sitting there un- unremarked, and very few people seem to have noticed that this is where where it all actually happened, or where it was supposed to have happened. That, that's something that's right under one's nose, so much so that it can be missed, and it, the same obtains, of course, with place names, towns and villages across the country. They, they might be the last evidence of a particular historical fact, a movement of people or a, a state of living or whatever it might be. So if the Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Street near you has a strange name. There may, may well be a reason for this. Don't ignore it. Find out about it. Um, I'm hoping we might come back to more strange place names and so forth in just a moment. We're going to take a word from our sponsor and we'll be back with Tom Bolton. London Est Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. 
You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and with me, Tom Bolton, author of Vanish City, London's Lost Neighbourhoods. And we've been chewing over a few of them, as you'll know by now, because, no, let's face it, nobody starts a podcast at the uh, randomly placed commercial break, so you know that already. I don't know why I bother telling you. Um, <laughs> we have much ground to cover, uh, literally and uh, narr- narr- hmm, narratorially. Narratorially? I'm going to go with that. I like it. I think you might have made it up, but I like it. Yeah, good. Okay, In- innovation right here. Where should we start? We could uh, we could go to a place name that I pass on a regular basis. Uh, that's always piqued my interest, but I'm quite keen to pick up on Agar Town actually because that's somewhere I think I might have heard of once. And I guess I'm knee deep in London for my work, and I feel like I should have been exposed to it a bit more than that. So Agar Town, somewhere that, that did a spectacular vanishing act, it was behind St Pancras Station on the site of the approaches, the railway approaches to the station. And essentially it was in the way. It was demolished when the station was built. But it had developed as a, a sort of a shanty town in some ways. So on the edge of built-up London. And it was let in parcels. So this meant that it was piecemeal. It didn't develop as a single place. And it started to get a bad reputation. It was full of houses that appeared to have been... Uh, built by the inhabitants, which is it's kind of interesting. I mean, it wasn't illegal. It, they weren't illegally settling land. They owned these plots, but it certainly had a, a fairly um, inconsistent appearance. But people started to talk about it as Ague Town, and the conditions there were not good, partly because there weren't any services. There was no sewage and no street lighting, which was the fault of the local vestry who were responsible for those sorts of things. Can we, can we, uh, can we stick a date on what you're saying? This is the uh, 18... 1840s, 1850s, that kind of stuff. There's still no sewerage at that point? No, well, they, they were very badly treated. The people of Agar Town, you know, they didn't have the services that should have been provided. And as a result, the place was uh, filthy. It had a reputation for smelling very, very bad. And there was disease there. But equally, there was quite a lot of, of snobbery, I think, about it. There was a lot of condemnation of the people who lived there on really bizarre grounds. For example, people who built their own houses were accused of, having, uh, of, of behaving in a satanic fashion by working on a Sunday on the basis that how could, you couldn't possibly have built your own house and had a job unless you worked on a Sunday to do it. So some really odd attitudes. And people, people wrote snobbly about how it was the kind of place you could hire warming pans which is a terrible Victorian insult, I think. But anyway, it was somewhere that had a, a poor reputation, and supposedly people from St Giles, which was the, the most notorious rookery in London, which was cleared in the mid-19th century, Covent Garden, supposedly people had moved to Agar Town from there. And this all, this all gave them a great pretext for essentially demolishing the entire place. The land was owned by the church, by the church commissioners, and they sold it pretty much overnight to the Midland Railway Company. And it was so much overnight that they were halfway through building a church. There was a half-built church there on the site, which was never finished and was demolished by the railway. And the entire place vanished, so no trace of it was left. There's only one street that is, is essentially a street that would have existed at the time of Agar Town. And the name almost completely disappeared, too. The only trace of that is Agar Grove, one street that runs across the railway line behind King's Cross. And that's it. Um, but the railway, too, has gone there. So the railway yards that surrounded the, the main lines into St Pancras, they all disappeared, too, became derelict during the 70s. And housing was built again, again on the same site. But because the name had been eliminated, the, the associations seemed to have gone. So this place just, just um, went up in smoke, basically. 
Who were the residents? Were they as as much a Londoner as anybody else in the peripheries of London at that time? Yeah, well, it was a very working class neighbourhood. I think that was part of its part of its problem in the eyes of people who made decisions about where railways should go. So the land was cheap, the houses were cheap to buy and demolish. But equally, I think it was less of a problem to shift the people, and it was seen as uh, social good. But it was the kind of place that, that, that there were some proper London London heroes who came from there. Dan Leno came from. Agar Town. He was the king of the music hall in, in the late 19th century, famous musical act. And a boxer called Tom Sayers came from there too. And he was he was a superstar of his time. He he won the first world heavyweight title, uh, boxing with a broken arm. And he was he was a he was a real slum hero. So this is a place with some with some history, even in its relatively short existence. I was wondering whether it might be the same sort of attitude that people display towards kind of Irish travellers or Roma gypsies or people like that. Who, but, but then there's the idea that they have ethnically not as much right to be in a particular place as somebody who's lived there the, the whole time, or that they don't integrate. It doesn't sound like either of those are really the, uh, the the cause there. Well, actually, there's a bit of that because there were quite a lot of Irish people in the area and it's thought that that there was an Irish community as part of Agar Town. It was described in the press as a, as being a suburban Connemara, which is a, a reference to you know dilapidated rural um, isolated Ireland, and that was partly, I think, because of because of the Irish people lived there. And Irish Irish workers came to London to work on the railway, so they they tended to live nearby. Uh, but I think there's a there's definitely a, a very explicit attitude in the 19th century about the kind of places that are good for the city and the kind of places that aren't. And they couldn't really separate the buildings and the people. So you found that uh, when there was poverty concentrated in one place, the solution tended to be demolish everything. And it didn't really help because people had to go somewhere. They went usually as near as they could go to where they'd had to leave. Uh, but it meant that places were completely demolished in a fairly a fairly spectacular fashion. I think some of the same attitudes exist today, but in, as you say, slightly different forms, and there's definitely a, a link there. I wonder, in your research, whether you've come across any places that, uh, where people have uh, tried to stamp them out and get rid of them and turn them into a, a vanished, forgotten thing, and they have uh, managed to cling on to life. Well, I think Clare Market is an interesting area. So around the LSE and Kingsway and the Old Witch, was the Clare Market slum. And the Clare Market slum was intentionally cleared when Kingsway was built. Kingsway was one of the last big road projects in central London, and it added a link that made sense in the road system. There wasn't a way to get uh, across town in that particular direction. But it did it by putting a very wide boulevard through a tangle of really ancient streets, which were they were very poor, um, but they'd been allowed to deteriorate to some extent. And some of the streets that were demolished were, were fairly amazing. The uh, the most famous is Witch Street, and Witch Street was known as the most picturesque street in London. It was full of Tudor buildings. It was a, a street that Shakespeare would have recognised because very little had changed. And tantalisingly, there are photographs of this. So this is 19, was it 1898 to 1908 kind of time. It took quite a long time to do the work. And the photographs from then show people standing in their shop doorways in these streets in the, the afternoon sun. It's, all, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, and you can see in great detail what was there. And that was all cleared. But I think that in some ways Clare Market won because 
the Aldwych and Kingsway are very formal, very kind of stiff roads. They're not very likeable, I don't think. They're, they're built on an imperial scale. But the alleyways that the LSE occupies and the backstreet pubs and so on, that's the real, that's the real place, I think. So they, they didn't transform into a, a, new, a new model city. They just put a great big road through the middle. and swapped out, the, swapped out the facades. Yeah, well, it feels that way. I think this, yes, it feels like a stage set along there. And in some ways it was. It was a, you know, it was a project to put a new, a new spin on the area. But Clare Market is, is the site of one of the favourite, my favourite things I found out during this research. Well, favourite is perhaps a strange way to put it. It's really gruesome. But it's a site of, near Clare Market, between Clare Market and Lincoln's Inn Field, is the site of the Enon Chapel. And the Enon Chapel closed in 1844. It was run by a, a preacher called William Holmes, who died. And they discovered that he'd been taking money for burials for a very long time. But he didn't actually have anywhere to bury the bodies that he'd been paid for. So they put them all under the floor, under the floor of the chapel. They found 12,000 bodies in the basement, under the floor of the, of the inn on chapel, which was still operating. Which is, seems incredible, but it's, it's very well documented. Could you just explain how that's possible? That's, uh, um, I can't quite imagine how you could fit that much human under a floorboard. Well, I think you'd have to go into unpleasant details, but... Well, come on, this is what we're here for. <laughs> so what are we what, saying? We, we put the, we the bottom... I know if this is going to upset you, listener, don't listen to this. <laughs> uh, but are we saying we, we put the bottom level and we let them kind of rot down and that makes a bit more space? Is that what you're talking about? Essentially, I think it had been excavated too. I mean, the accounts are, are not entirely clear as to exactly how he, he found the space, but um, the... The, the end result seems, seems pretty well documented. An incredible number of bodies in this one space. And he made a lot of money out of it. So he was, you know, he was digging under his, under his building to, to, to make space to, to bury people. But the, the most amazing thing about this is that they didn't close the chapel when they found, they found this out. They, it didn't shut for a few years afterwards. Instead, it opened as a dance hall and <laughs> they advertised dancing on the dead. And people, people came and... People came and enjoyed themselves. It was a kind of a, a strange sort of carnival freak show. But it tells you a lot about the city, that you could have putrefying bodies um, just a, a floorboard away from you know, everyday life. And no one really noticed, because the smell wasn't that unusual. It was, L- London was a very smelly place in, in the 19th century, and we've kind of forgotten that now, I think. And we could thank our, thank our stars that we didn't live then, in some ways. Well, we also want to be grateful for the uh, smoking ban, I suppose. One lit match at the wrong time with all those uh, bodily gases going up. Uh, what's on the site there now? Well, this is just uh, behind uh, Lincoln's Inn Fields, so it's, it's disappeared into the, the rearranged streets, really, but it's hard to find the exact site, but it's part of LSE. It's sort of uh, between LSE and Lincoln's Inn Fields and the back streets. Uh, let's talk about n- a name that's familiar to my ear, but I know nothing about Norton Folgate. Uh, yeah, Norton Folgate is a bit of a curiosity. It's a, an area that nowadays just consists of a, of a stretch of road. Bishopsgate by Liverpool Street turns into Norton Folgate briefly for a, for a couple of hundred yards, and then it becomes Shoreditch High Street. And it's it always puzzled me a little as to why this bit of street was called something so distinctive and odd. And this is part of what led me into this research. I looked into it. And Norton Folgate is another liberty. We spoke about liberties earlier, areas that were self-governing, that were outside the city walls. So it was a, a form of local government. And Norton Folgate was just beyond the, the Bishop's Gate, beyond the walls of, of the City of London. And it was the site of um, 
the St Mary's Spittal Hospital, which Spitalfields is named after, which was a bit like Bart's or, or St Thomas's. They were hospitals that uh, started off as, in, as uh, religious institutions and developed into London's great hospitals, except St Mary's Spittal didn't. It was demolished instead, so uh, it could have become one of those. But Norton Folgate was uh, self-governing, despite being tiny, just a handful of streets until 1900. It had its own... It's its own system. It had a little town hall building, which was demolished in the 60s. And it had a board of ancients. It was run by the ancients of Norton Folgate, who, who provided all the services. There was a beadle who did the law and order um, side of things. There, there were people who, who managed the area. But it was only, it's, it's tiny. It's absolutely tiny. You can walk across it in five minutes. Uh, but it still exists in, in the form of the street name. And it keeps popping up in culture. Madness made an album called The Liberty of Norton Folgate a couple of years ago. So there's a bit of a sense of, um, of something there. But it's also a really contested area. So right on the edge of the city, a lot of redevelopment's happening. And the, the 19th century buildings are disappearing fast. And they're being replaced by city offices. And it's, it's really quite contested because of that. The changes spreading out of the city into areas that were previously uh, very different. And people in the past have attempted to find legal grounds to, to resurrect the powers of Norton Folgate. Um, you know, a bit like Passport to Pimlico. It's a very Ealing film scenario. And I think people have seen, they've seen Passport to Pimlico and thought, hang on a minute, maybe we could do this. As far as I know, though, it's not, it's not really had any success. Well, what happened to these liberties then? What, under what, on what grounds were they decommissioned? Well, eventually, local government was tidied up and there, was a, there were lots of, of strange anomalies like that, uh, particularly around the edge of the city. So it was the, as London had developed, it had, it had created these bespoke arrangements which didn't really make a lot of sense. So it was all eventually swept away. But the, the archives... This sounds like a Victorian uh, mindset. Well, yes, it was, yeah. The, the, that, was when, that was when the tidying up happened. I mean, it made some sense. It was a pretty crazy, pretty crazy system, but n- nonetheless pretty fascinating for us. And the actual the, the relics of, of Norton Folgate are held in the Museum of London. Uh, they were discovered not long ago by uh, the, the blogger who writes Spitalfield's Life. And he found the staff of, of belonging to the beadle of Norton Folgate and various other items which are held in their collection. Mm. There's physical evidence to exist. It's the kind of place that sounds as though it's been made up, but it really isn't. Is there a part of you that you, you mentioned the word tantalising earlier on in relation to the photographs from Clare Market? Is there a part of you that would give you a right arm to be able to travel back and, and wander around some of these vanished neighbourhoods? Well, there is. I mean, certainly, the, there are lots of places that you think, oh, that would have been that would have been amazing. I mean, really, my my take on this is that this is all still here in some ways. It's um, you know, just just around the corner, maybe, or just beneath the surface. So. This book is very much about London as it is now, but starting from what we have uh, in our modern streets, we can see things that are incredibly uh, complex and varied and bizarre. And that's, that's what interests me, really, finding these things in the modern city. So I do a lot, do a lot of walking, and walking is the, one of the research mechanisms I use for this kind of work. Um, go out there and look at what's there and try and understand how it came to be. And what... what um I want to say learning, which is a weird word to use. Uh, but what, what learning do you bring to bear when you're looking? Because as, as we mentioned earlier on, there's a lot of stuff to see, but you've kind of got to know what you're looking at in some respects, whether that's architecturally or uh, linguistically or whatever it might be. So what, what knowledge do you come with? I suppose I've spent a lot of time 
looking for lost rivers, partly. So it's about the topography of the city. The yes, have you had any luck there, by the way? Oh, I have. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, I've got a. I have a book on on lost rivers. So I've traced. Um, I've traced quite a lot of those. I'm going to do some more as well. But that's partly the reading the landscape. So you can, if you're looking for a river, you can see mm. the shape of the valley um, almost always. You can tell where it used to flow. And once you see it, it becomes obvious. It's like hidden hidden paths really across London they're not mapped, the rivers aren't on any modern map, yet they're physically clearly still there mm. um, just, you know, conflicting with the, the existing street pattern a lot of the time, going under buildings and um, taking routes that you can't follow because we know that certain sort of industries would naturally spring up next to waterways and so uh, probably there's a sort of a crossover with, with this project, uh, but what, what other branches of knowledge do you have to employ? Some of the knowledge that I've applied is uh, about my local area. I, I started looking around Streatham where I live and it became pretty clear quite quickly that it used to be something very different. So Streatham was right on the edge of London, very isolated from um, the city. It was a country village and then Victorian development of London linked it up like everywhere else. But Streatham was a spa in the 18th century. It was a fashionable spa resort. And the wells that, that fed the spa were on top of Streatham Common on the hill. They were found by accident in the 1600s, and ploughmen stumbled across a hollow with a spring in it. And soon this place became extremely fashionable. You'd have queues of, of carriages along Streatham High Road waiting to, to turn up the road and, and get to the spa. It was somewhere that Prince Regent would um, pop by on his way to Brighton. This is uh, later George IV. And he, he would apparently go to the, the horse and groom in Streatham for, for some gambling and some entertainment. And um, other people would take the waters, like uh, Dr. Johnson, for example, who had friends who lived nearby in Streatham. So it was a very, very much a, a society haunt. And then spas fell out of fashion a bit and gradually d- declined and, and disappeared. But in Streatham, you could still buy spring water until the Second World War and you could have it develop, delivered with your, with your milk because the dairy that delivered milk locally also had a spring on its site, which, was, which they, uh, they used, and they, they sold the water commercially. I can't, I can't get Del Boy out of my mind right now, but uh, what's happened to the uh, sp- uh, springs and spas uh, now? Where are they? Well, the, two of the wells seem to have, been, have disappeared, maybe been choked up at some point in you know, a couple of hundred years ago, but there is still a well on Streatham Common in the rookery which is the landscape garden at the top and it looks a bit like a sort of Jack and Jill well from a fairy tale it's got a little wooden wooden cover over it um, but nobody drinks from it anymore it's very it's very um, low key just in the middle of a, a bit of council garden really and then there's a well house on the site of the dairy the dairy was only demolished I think last year and it's being replaced by houses and there's a wood behind it which has springs in it too so there's just a few traces left but the idea of Streatham as a spa town is something that's it's a little hard to process. It's an entirely different existence. We need to finish, and I'm very regretful about that because I could talk to you all day. I suppose we should finish with a look to the future, as is customary. And I wonder if you've got your eye on any bit of London that's looking a bit wobbly and might end up in a future edition of this book. Well, since I started doing this and um, trying to tie these places together and understand the themes that link them... It's become pretty obvious that this is still going on all around us. So, for example, the Haygate Estate, which 
existed at the beginning of this year no longer does it's been demolished that's an entire district it's a, a very large area of london that's that's been removed effectively the plans around the earl's court exhibition site the the exhibition center is expected to be demolished and also housing nearby two housing estates so i think we're we're constantly remaking uh, the city and and changing the identities of places there's a lot of relabeling going on too i think so people are always trying to reclaim place names and turn their area into the London Bridge Quarter or Midtown, which is um, something I have a particular problem with, um, essentially to create some kind of different control, to take control of perceptions and um, therefore influence the way that places develop. So I think that the vanishing is going on constantly. But then London is in a... It's in a a constant cycle of change it really is and you, you you become immune to it really because what can you do it just happens this is what happens in the city but if you step back and look you can see you can see change progressing on a time scale that uh, means that you could see it you can see it happen you know, everywhere uh, varying degrees sometimes spectacularly so sometimes incrementally uh, but if you look back to previous centuries or even to the, the time of the White City, grandparents' sort of generation, really. You, you see places that that simply simply don't uh, appear on our on our radar anymore. It's interesting that you finish with White City, and I was just thinking about how slowly that change might happen. And in the case of White City, it was just year on year things getting slightly grimier for a long period, and who's going to notice that, really? Um, we have to come to a close. Details of your book, if you please. So the book is called Vanished City London's Lost Neighbourhoods. It's available from Strange Tractor. Um, it'll be, it's, it's published um, in time for Christmas and can be ordered from, from all good bookshops. Good. Tom Bolton, thanks very much for taking the time today. A pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Tom Bolton. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.